We open the scriptures to 1 Corinthians chapter 12, making a slight adjustment to the reading that I put in the bulletin. We're actually going to begin our reading at verse 27, then we're going to read through 1 Corinthians chapter 13. It's my intention to begin tonight a a short series on beautiful chapter well known to us, 1 Corinthians chapter 13. So the sermon tonight's an introduction of sorts to the chapter. So let's begin our reading at 1 Corinthians 12 verse 27. Now ye are the body of Christ, and members in particular. And God hath set some in the church, first apostles, secondarily prophets, thirdly teachers, after that miracles, then gifts of healings, helps, governments, diversities of tongues. Are all apostles? Are all prophets? Are all teachers? Are all workers of miracles? Have all the gifts of healing? Do all speak with tongues? Do all interpret? But covet earnestly the best gifts. And yet show I unto you a more excellent way. Though I speak with the tongues of men and of angels and have not charity, I am become as a sounding brass or a tinkling cymbal. And though I have the gift of prophecy and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and though I have all faith, so that I could remove mountains and have not charity, I am nothing. And though I bestow all my goods to feed the poor, and though I give my body to be burned and have not charity, it profiteth me nothing. Charity suffereth long and is kind. Charity envieth not. Charity vaunteth not itself, is not puffed up doth not behave itself unseemly, seeketh not her own, is not easily provoked, thinketh no evil, rejoiceth not in iniquity, but rejoiceth in the truth, beareth all things, believeth all things, hopeth all things, endureth all things. Charity never faileth, but whether there be prophecies, they shall fail, whether there be tongues, they shall cease, whether there be knowledge, it shall vanish away. For we know in part, and we prophesy in part, But when that which is perfect is come, then that which is in part shall be done away. When I was a child, I spake as a child, I understood as a child, I thought as a child. But when I became a man, I put away childish things. For now we see through a glass darkly, but then face to face. Now I know in part, but then shall I know even as also I am known. And now abideth faith, hope, charity, these three. But the greatest of these is charity. Call your attention tonight to chapter 12, verse 31, which will be our text. But covet earnestly the best gifts, and yet show I unto you a more excellent way. If you were asked to pick one word that captures 
what it is to live like a Christian. One word that at the same time captures who God is graciously towards his people. One word that captures the loftiest idea of the covenant of grace, what that covenant is at its heart. One word which can express the essence, the meaning, the purpose of our life as Christians. Do you find a word that could express all that? We would not go wrong selecting the word, the concept that is the theme of 1 Corinthians chapter 13. Charity. That is love. Charity is a way that the King James often renders love, speaking now about true, spiritual, God-worked love that is worked in the heart of the children of God by the gracious operation of the Spirit. True love that is from God, the God who first loved us. Love. Charity. You think about God's Word, the Bible, the way the Bible speaks about love, it becomes readily apparent why love stands at the heart of the Christian life, stands at the heart of God's relationship to us, His people, the heart of the covenant. What is love? God is love, the Bible says. He's the source of love. He is love within within His own divine being. And he overflows in boundless love towards his people, though they don't deserve it. He sheds his love abroad in the hearts of his people by his Holy Spirit. So that they bring forth the fruit of the Spirit, the first of which is love. Love is that which we are called to put on above all things. For it is the bond of perfectness, Colossians 3.14 says. Love is the end of the law. In fact, love is the sum of the whole law, the whole will of God, that we love God with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength, and love our neighbor as ourselves. The end of 1 Corinthians 13 sets before us the three cardinal Christian graces, faith, hope, and love. These three abideth, and yet, the inspired apostle says, the greatest of these is love. That's the shape of the Christian life. That's the central activity of the Christian life. Love. Love glorifies God. Love mirrors and reflects who God is to his people. In the relationship of friendship he established with us in Christ. That we call the covenant of grace. Love is at the heart of the Christian faith. It's important to be reminded of that. Because sometimes in our day we might have a knee jerk reaction When we hear love, knee-jerk reaction, love again, love really that important. One reason being that our world and our culture is engaged in one of the greatest acts of robbery and plunder that has ever been engaged in. Our culture has taken the Christian concept of love and utterly perverted it. 
So that when the world speaks about love, often what the world means is an undiscerning acceptance and an unquestioning affirmation of so-and-so's personal life choices. And that's not what love is. Love is a deep desire and earnest effort to do that which is truly good to another person, even at cost to oneself. And that's the kind of love that is described for us in 1 Corinthians 13. So we want to avoid that knee-jerk reaction because our culture says love, love, love. Having redefined love, they're not talking about real love. But also, love is hard. In fact, it's one of the hardest things to do. And that is a reason why a series on what true Christian love is is important. Lord willing, will be helpful to us in our Christian lives. We're called to be a people who love our God and love one another. But when we're honest with ourselves, we see that's a really hard thing to do. In 1 Corinthians 13, the inspired apostle gives us a literary masterpiece, a poem, a psalm of love that is so beautiful and so very instructive and sets before us what true love is and what it looks like and specifically identifies for us what the life of love should be like. Love is everything that we read in 1 Corinthians 13. And so for the next several Sundays, we're going to work through this beautiful chapter with the prayer and the desire in our hearts that this positive, wonderful word of God may be encouraging to us, that it may strengthen us to love as Christ loved us and as Christ calls us to love. That we may submit to the inspection of this passage because love is so hard and because we carry our sinful flesh with us, often we stumble and falter and even fail in our calling to love and this passage will bring that out. We will see our weaknesses and our sins and we will be led to the cross and led to the God of love who showed his love to us in the gift of Jesus Christ. Strengthened by his spirit and by his word. We'll go forward having learned more to live out the more excellent way. And that's what our text calls love. That's why we're beginning our study of 1 Corinthians 13 with 1 Corinthians 12, verse 31. Really, the the verse divisions in the King James Version and most versions of the Bible, they're not inspired. And so really, you could take the last verse of 2 Corinthians 12 and put it down in 1 Corinthians 13. Because really, 1 Corinthians 12, 31 is the transition from the Apostle's discussion of spiritual gifts in chapter 12 a discussion that he'll resume in chapter 14. It's a transition to bring forth this central concept of the epistle to the, to the Corinthians. Love. I show unto you the more excellent way, and that more excellent way is 1 Corinthians 13. And so to introduce us to this wonderful subject, let's consider... This text, under the theme, learning to live the more excellent way. Learning to live the more excellent way. We're first going to look at the need. And by the need, what is meant here is, we want to see the need for continuing to learn 
how to love. Because learning to love is a lifelong lesson. Then we're going to look at the way, the more excellent way. And here we're not going to delve deeply into all of the concrete details of what Christian love is. Because that's what 1 Corinthians 13 is going to do for us. But rather in the second point, we're going to lay some of the conceptual groundwork. What is the Christian definition of love? And what does it mean that love is the more excellent way? And then finally, we will end with that calling. Covet earnestly the best gifts. See what that means. So that we can go forward into this new series with that calling in our hearts. Desiring to grow in love. So we begin tonight with the need to fully appreciate 1 Corinthians 13 and the instruction that it gives us about Christian love. It's helpful to see how 1 Corinthians 13 fits into the entirety of the book, 1 Corinthians, and how it fits into the broader context of the book. When we look at the rest of this epistle, it sheds light on the Apostle's instruction about love in 1 Corinthians chapter 13. And so that's what we're going to do in the first point. We're going to go through the background of the epistle to the Corinthians, the first epistle to the Corinthians, and look at Some of the reasons that Paul wrote this book and reasons why, by the inspiration of the Spirit, he wrote chapter 13. First, a little bit of background on the church in Corinth. Corinth was a city in Greece. It was situated on the Corinthian Isthmus. And that word Isthmus refers to a narrow neck of land that had water on both sides. The Corinthian Isthmus connected mainland Greece with the southernmost peninsula, the Peloponnese Peninsula. And to the west was the Ionian Sea, and to the east was the Aegean Sea. And because of the position of Corinth, it became a merchant's hub. One old writer called it the Mart Or the market of the world. It was a center of commerce. The city had ports on both sides. And so shipping could come in to both sides of the city. And because this city of Corinth became such a hub of commerce. It also became a very wealthy city. And economic success. As it so often does. Brought looseness of morality. Luxury. And vice. In fact, Corinth in the ancient Greek world was a city so famous for its iniquity that the Greek language of the day came to have a verb, Corinthiadzo. And that verb had two meanings it meant to live as a Corinthian or to live a licentious lifestyle or even to fornicate. So synonymous was Corinth with immorality that the very Greek language connected the two. Corinth was a wealthy city, but as full of wealth as it was, it was full of the worst sort of vices. As a Greek city, Corinth also prided itself in philosophy, in worldly wisdom. It was a city of culture and was very proud of its culture. It was into this darkness. 
This darkness of Corinth that the light of the gospel of Jesus Christ had broken. And out of this darkness, a largely Gentile congregation, though there were several Jews a part of it as well, but a largely Gentile congregation was gathered by the ascended Christ using the means of the preaching of the Apostle Paul on his second missionary journey. You can read some of the important details about Paul's ministry in Corinth in Acts chapter 18. Acts chapter 18 tells us that Paul labored there in Corinth for about a year and a half, and it was hard work in such a den of iniquity as Corinth was. So hard that the Lord even saw fit to give Paul a vision in the night to encourage him. You can read about that striking vision in Acts 18 verses 9 and 10 where God says to Paul, Be not afraid, but speak, and hold not thy peace, for I am with thee, and no man shall set on thee to hurt thee. And these are the words most well known to us. For I have much people in this city. God told Paul, many of my sheep, many of my elect are in this city, even here in Corinth. Corinth, which is synonymous with licentiousness and wickedness. I have much people here. Be not afraid. Labor. Preach the gospel. And by the power of the Spirit, that gospel brought light into the hearts of that much people that belong to the Lord. And a church was built in Corinth. A church, which was a true church. A true church with many commendable qualities. That comes out if you look at how Paul addresses the church in Corinth. If you flip back to chapter 1 of 1 Corinthians, we can look at that address of the apostle. 1 Corinthians chapter 1, we'll we'll read the first few verses and, and pay attention to how Paul speaks to the Corinthians. These new believers... Recently been dr- who have been drawn out of the darkness and immorality of pagan unbelief. Paul, an apo- Paul, called to be an apostle of Jesus Christ through the will of God, and Sosthenes, our brother, unto the church of God which is at Corinth, to them that are sanctified in Christ Jesus, called to be saints. That's striking as he writes to these saints who are living in the midst of one of the most wicked cities. Wickedness that they not too long ago, had fully participated in. He addresses them as the sanctified, the set-apart ones in Jesus Christ, those who are called to be saints. With all that in every place call upon the name of Jesus Christ our Lord, both theirs and ours, grace be unto you in peace from God our Father and from the Lord Jesus Christ. Now in verse 4, the apostle goes on to give thanks for these Corinthian believers. I thank my God always on your behalf for the grace of God which is given you by Jesus Christ. Grace had been given to them and grace had changed them and grace had turned their lives around and that grace was evident in their lives. He goes on. That in everything ye are enriched by him in all utterance and in all knowledge. Even as the testimony of Christ was confirmed in you, there was an area of particular strength for the Corinthians. They were enriched by the grace of God. They had knowledge, an understanding of the gospel, and a knowledge of the gospel that was quite impressive, you might say, for new believers. And then he goes on in verse 7 to say, 
So that ye come behind in no gift waiting for the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. There were many members in the Corinthian church who had spiritual gifts. It was a true church. Built by God's grace. And yet, this Corinthian church, though a true church, was a church with many serious weaknesses. Many serious problems. And those weaknesses and problems became the occasion for the Apostle to write this letter of 1 Corinthians. In fact, the majority of 1 Corinthians is occupied with addressing the serious problems in Corinth. Corinth was a church that was in trouble in many ways. There are three main things that occasioned the apostle writing to the Corinthians. The first was reports of division in the congregation. The second was reports of gross public sin, which was being tolerated in the Corinthian congregation. And then thirdly, there are various questions that apparently had been sent to the apostle in the hand of one of their members, which Paul addresses. We'll briefly go through those three things now. First, Paul wrote 1 Corinthians because he had heard reports from concerned members that there was division, strife, and party spirit cropping up in the Corinthian congregation, and that this was generating further strife and driving members apart. We can read of that in chapter 1, verses 11 and 12. For it hath been declared unto me of you, my brethren, by them which are of the house of Chloe, That there are contentions, divisions, strife among you. There are concerned members, particularly those who belong to the household of Chloe, that had brought word to Paul, or sent word to Paul, that there are serious problems in the congregation. Verse 12, now this I say, that every one of you, Seth, I am of Paul, and I am of Apollos, and I of Cephas, and I of Christ. These were not disagreements over the essence or the heart of the gospel. But rather, these were clashes of personality. These were disagreements of various sorts over non-gospel issues. These were divisions that were emerging on account of pride and on account of sin. These were things that ought not to be dividing a congregation. And there were different parties forming in the congregation who were identifying themselves with certain teachers, certain men that they held in esteem. Some Paul, some Apollos, some Cephas, Peter. And others were saying, I am of Christ. And the apostle spends the first four chapters of the epistle addressing that problem. Explaining to the Corinthians that they were not to be divided from one another in this way. And that this division struck at the essence of what the church is. The church is the body of Christ. And the church has unity because the members of the church are united to the head, Jesus Christ. At the end of chapter 3, he gives a decisive answer to all of that party spirit saying, I am of this man, I am of that man, when he says, ye are Christ's. All of you are Christ's. There's your unity in Christ. The second, Paul also heard reports about gross public sin that was festering in the Corinthian church. And he addresses this in 1 Corinthians 5 verse 1. 
It is reported commonly that there is fornication among you, and such fornication as is not so much as named among the Gentiles, that one should have his father's wife. Apparently, there was a man in the congregation living in an incestuous relationship. And very possibly this man was esteemed, or this man held a position, so that nothing was done about this sin. It was glossed over. It wasn't dealt with. There wasn't discipline administered. And so this sin was allowed to continue. And Paul, in verse 2, addresses that as a serious problem. And Paul is actually more shocked about the Corinthians' way of handling this. Not handling it at all. He's shocked by that more than the fact that such a sin should emerge in the church. He says in verse 2, And ye are puffed up, and have not rather mourned that he that hath done this deed might be taken away from among you. And so the Apostle Paul will proceed to give instruction about how the church is to handle such a gross public sin. Discipline is to be administered to this impenitent sinner to the point that if there is no repentance, he is to be put out of the church so that his leaven does not leaven the rest of the lump. Third and finally, there were questions from various church members that the Apostle Paul addresses. Paul begins addressing those questions at the beginning of chapter 7. Chapter 7, verse 1, where Paul writes, Now concerning the things whereof ye wrote unto me. They wrote unto him with questions. And then in the rest of chapter 7, he goes on to address questions about marriage, questions about the dignity of the single state. And then in chapter 8 and 9, He goes on to address the subject of Christian liberty and how to handle meat sacrificed to idols. And there he particularly gives important instruction that believers are not to misuse their Christian liberty such that they harm the weaker brother. Knowledge. Knowledge was one of The Corinthians' strengths. But their strengths also became stumbling blocks to them. Some of the members of the church began without reserve to partake of meat that had been sacrificed to idols. Without caring about the effect that that had on some of their weaker Brothers or those who had a more sensitive conscience. Brothers or sisters who had just come out of paganism and were bothered deeply by that. And Paul brings the instruction to those believers who saw themselves as more knowledgeable and mature. In the exercise of your rights, don't trample upon the weaker brother, but have a concern for that weaker brother and be willing even to sacrifice your own rights for the sake of the weaker brother. Those are some of the main issues that were occurring in the church of Corinth. Now, that brings us to this important question. What was at the root of so many of these problems that the Apostle addresses here in 1 Corinthians? Undoubtedly, many factors contributed to the problems of the church of Corinth. That's usually the case. There are many problems 
or rather many factors that contribute. But can we identify something that was a main contributor? 1 Corinthians 13 points us to the root issue. After addressing all of these issues in the Corinthian church, up to chapter 12 where he deals with spiritual gifts, and there's another thing they were struggling with, there were some who were misusing spiritual gifts or putting more prominence on certain spiritual gifts and looking down on others who they judged to be less gifted. After all of that instruction, addressing the problems in the church, Paul says, yet show I unto you a more excellent way. At the root of their problems was a certain lack of true Christian love. That doesn't mean that the Corinthians didn't love at all or that they did not have the spiritual gift of love. Of course they did. As true believers, the fruit of true living faith is love. But they were failing to live up to the gospel calling to love one another as Christ loved them. There were deficiencies in their church life. They were not loving as they ought. They were not walking in that most excellent way as they should have. That explains why 1 Corinthians 13 appears where it does in the book. It seems kind of sudden. Paul is addressing all of these things. And then we have this beautiful chapter on love. Paul did not write 1 Corinthians 13 in a vacuum. He wrote chapter 13 to address the very real needs and problems that he saw in the Corinthian church. Really, chapter 13 is at the heart of Paul's instruction for the Corinthians. Love. The more excellent way. Think back on what we've seen in our brief overview of the book. Think back on those problems that the Corinthians had in their church. And you can readily see how a lack of Christian love, how a failure to walk in the most excellent way was a root cause or at least a big contributor to those problems. Division and strife. The emergence of a party spirit. A lack of love was like gasoline thrown on that fire. Where love is absent, there develops an aptitude for bickering and infighting and striving and a certain pleasure even in defining oneself over against others who are your brothers in Christ. And that's what was happening in the Corinthian church. And it stemmed back To a deficiency in the kind of love that is described in 1 Corinthians 13. The weeds of unholy division and strife grow abundantly in a loveless or a love deficient atmosphere. But those weeds will struggle to grow in soil that is well watered and warmed by Christian love. And thus, to combat that division in the Corinthian church, 1 Corinthians 13 is at the heart of the Apostles' instruction. Love. Gross public sins. 
that weren't being dealt with according to the word of God. The big contributor was a lack of love. A lack of love for God and His holiness. And a lack of love for one's neighbor. The Corinthians had, had become puffed up. They took pride in their knowledge. They thought they were spiritual. And in that pride, they didn't take the sins in their own midst seriously. It was a lack of love for the congregation. One another. That were endangered by the presence of this leavening sin. It was a lack of love for the man who was walking impenitently in that sin. Because the longer he walked in that sin, he's heading straight for destruction. And so the apostle's instruction in 1 Corinthians 13. Love stands behind his instruction regarding church discipline. Church discipline is to be an exercise of Christian love. For God. For the brethren as a whole. And for the sinner. The other matters that the apostle addresses. Knowledge. Knowledge. The Corinthians were proud of their knowledge. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 8 verse 1. Now as touching things offered unto idols, we know that we all have knowledge. We all know that the idol gods of the heathens are nothing. We know, we have knowledge. But then he goes on to say this, Knowledge puffeth up, but charity edifieth. Paul isn't saying knowledge is bad, get rid of knowledge, don't cherish knowledge. Of course not. True spiritual knowledge is one of the most precious things God has given us. In fact, true spiritual knowledge is part of what faith is. But what Paul is saying here is knowledge all by itself. Knowledge divorced from Christian love inflates pride. And that's what was happening here in Corinth. Many of these more mature believers, or at least that's how they saw themselves, were lifted up in pride. They were proud of their knowledge. They were proud of their spirituality. And they looked down on the weaker brethren in the congregation. They had no patience for that weaker brother who couldn't stomach meat offered to idols. There was a lack of compassion. And all of that went back to pride in their knowledge. Pride which was allowed to flourish. In an atmosphere where there was a lack. A lack of the love. The love that keeps knowledge from puffing people up. Chapter 12, spiritual gifts. In the Corinthian church, there were certain spiritual gifts that appear to have been prized the most. In chapter 12 and in chapter 14, mention is made multiple times of speaking in tongues. That miraculous ability that God gave to some during the apostolic age to speak real human languages that they had not previously known. That gift, as well as other gifts that were more outwardly, shall we say, impressive, were prized among the Corinthians. And that led to certain people lifting themselves up because they possessed those more prized gifts, while other members of the congregations felt on the margin or less important because they did not possess those certain gifts that were esteemed. And Paul addresses that as well in this book. Points out that none of those 
That's what we're going to look at next week. None of those gifts mean anything apart from love. 1 Corinthians 13 is what the Corinthians needed. Instruction in the more excellent way of love. And now, do we see our need for the same instruction? The church problems in Corinth were not and are not uniquely Corinthian problems, but problems the church struggles with throughout the ages. Strife and division, infighting, members not getting along, gross public sins emerging in the congregation, and those sins not being dealt with according to the Scripture. Spiritual gifts. Some being prized more highly than others so that some members are pushed to the sidelines. Pride. Pride in knowledge. All of these things that Corinth struggled with. The church throughout the ages has struggled with. And as we look at ourselves. Individually. As a congregation. As a denomination, do we see Corinth's problems in our midst? If we are brutally honest with ourselves, we can see every one of these things. These are not struggles unique to Corinth, these are struggles of the church throughout the ages. And then the positive side love. Love is hard. Love is one of the hardest things to do because love is diametrically opposed to the natural direction of our human nature. Go back to the catechism. We are prone by nature to hate God and our neighbor. Love is hard. It's hard to love God with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength. It's hard to consistently, intentionally love all our neighbors and our brethren in the church. It's far easier to master our doctrine. That's good. Knowledge is good. Never to be disparaged. But it's easier to master our doctrine than it is to love one another the way that doctrine teaches us. It's easier to come to church and sit together in a sanctuary than it is to really live together in love like 1 Corinthians 13 describes. It's hard. And that's why this is a lifelong lesson and an age-long lesson for the church. We have only the beginning of the new obedience to the law of God, which is love. We have that gift. It's been worked in our hearts by the Holy Spirit. We have the gift of love like the Corinthians did. But we need this instruction just as much as they. Individually, as a church, as a denomination, to keep growing. Keep learning more and more to live the more excellent way.
And that's the prayer we have with this short series of sermons. That as we go through, piece by piece, 1 Corinthians 13, God's Word may give us that growth and give us that encouragement in the more excellent way. Let's look at that way for a few moments tonight. As I said in the introduction, we're not going to dig into the concrete details of love in action. That's what 1 Corinthians 13 is all about. But what I want to do in the second point is briefly venture a definition of Christian love according to Scripture. A definition that we're going to see worked out and applied throughout the chapter throughout 1 Corinthians 13. And so we want to answer the question a moment tonight, what really is love? We've talked a lot about love. We've seen the need that we have to learn more, to walk in the way of love. We've seen the need of the church to grow continually in love. But what is this love that we've been talking about for a while tonight already? It's difficult to define, isn't it? Love is something we're all very familiar with. Love is something we know when we see it or when we experience it. We know it and we know it deeply, even though it's often hard to put words, put words to describe and define what exactly it is. How do you define something so varied, something so rich, something so mysterious, something so deep yet lofty as genuine, sincere, true, spiritual love? It almost defies definition. And you can see that when you browse through 1 Corinthians 13. In 1 Corinthians 13, Paul doesn't give a tight definition of love. Rather, what Paul does is describe love in action. And that's important. That's especially how we know love and come to understand what love is and how to live out this more excellent way by seeing it in action. Contrary to the thinking, the warped thinking of our day and age, love cannot be reduced to a feeling. A fuzzy feeling that comes and goes, something that you can't control, that just sweeps you away. Love, of course, has a powerful emotional element. Indeed, the emotions of love are some of the most powerful and beautiful that a human being can experience. God created love, including its emotional element. But the essence of love is more than that. When you look at 1 Corinthians 13 and how the apostle describes love, two words rise to the foreground. Attitude and action. Love is a certain attitude of the heart towards another person. It's a certain disposition of mind towards them. And that attitude, that disposition, leads to concrete actions. Love is an attitude that leads to action. And those two are always together. So can we venture a sort of definition? We can. That's what we'll do here. 
No definition is perfect. And as wonderful and vast a concept as love is, a perfect definition may very, very well be beyond our grasp. But this is one possible working definition. Love according to scriptures, true Christian love, is this. The God-given, heartfelt desire and faithful pursuit of the true good of another person through giving of self for that person. Love is the God-given, heartfelt desire and faithful pursuit of the true good of another person through the giving of self. For that person. Think about it biblically. And you can see how all of those parts fit. God given. That's the starting point. All true spiritual love is God given. God is the author. Anything that is worthy of, call, of being called love. Comes from God. Whom the scriptures say. Is love. John 4 verse 18. God is love. And God is love entirely apart from us and our existence. God is love within himself. And here the doctrine of the Trinity comes in. God is one God and yet there are three divine persons who are that one God. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And the relationship of Father, Son, and Holy Spirit within the Godhead is love. Within the eternal, infinitely blessed life of God. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit desire and faithfully pursue the true good and blessedness of the other and give of themselves for the other. The life of God is a life of perfect love within himself. And God glorifies himself by manifesting his love outside of himself. He made a creation. And at the heart and at the top of that creation, he created man. And out of the human race, he's gathered the spiritual family of Jesus Christ, his elect people who are the objects of his love. We saw that in Deuteronomy 7 this morning, how God sets his love upon his people. Romans 5 verse 5 says, God sheds his love abroad in our hearts by the Holy Spirit. And the Holy Spirit, who conveys to us the love of God, works true love in our hearts, true love for one another, so that the first fruit of the Spirit, according to Galatians 5.22, is love. That's the principal fruit of the Spirit. 1 John 4, verse 19 says, We love Him because He first loved us. God is the source, the author of true love. It's God-given. But that God-given love, what is it at its essence? That God-given love is heartfelt desire and faithful pursuit of the true good of another person. And that's where our world completely twists things around. Our world says, the way you love someone is you let them do whatever they want. The way you love someone is you close your eyes, you stop using your discernment, and you simply accept Whatever choices they make. And not only accept it, but you affirm that. Even if it's self-destructive, you affirm it and you lie to them. You tell them that choice, that lifestyle is great, even though it's destroying them. That's not love. Love truly cares and seeks what is 
actually good for the person that you love. It's a heartfelt desire and a faithful pursuit of that which is truly good. And we see that in God. God's love is an attitude of goodwill and delight in His people. And that attitude then takes action. Salvation is God's love in action. Christ is the supreme demonstration of all that divine love is. God is faithful, absolutely faithful in the pursuit of the highest good of his people. And that leads to the next part of the definition then. That we, when we love, we have a heartfelt desire And faithfully pursue the true good of another person through giving of ourselves. That's how love does good. Love does good and seeks the blessedness of another person by giving. Love is not about taking. And that's where the world has it backwards and that's where our flesh has it backwards. So often people talk about love and loving someone. But what they really mean is that person gives me what I want. That person gives me a certain feeling that I enjoy. And so I love that person. That's not love. Love doesn't consume another person. Love doesn't treat another person as an object for the satisfaction of my own desires. But love says, I submit my own desires to the cause of doing good to that person that I love. Even when it costs me. Such that I must give of myself for their benefit. Love does good by giving. And again you look at God and God's love and you see that. 1 John 4.10 Herein is love. Not that we loved God, but that He loved us and sent His Son to be the propitiation for our sins. God's love in action is the supreme act of self-sacrifice. The supreme act of self-giving. He sent His only begotten Son into the world. And Jesus, He gives His own life. He suffers hell on the cross. To secure for you and me and all his people the supreme good of life eternal. That's love in action. Doing that which is good. Pursuing the true good of the beloved. Through giving of self. And that love of God for us. Gives the shape to the love that we are to have to one another. 1 John 3 verse 16 Hereby perceive we the love of God, because He laid down His life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for the brethren. True Christian love is not self-centered or self-focused, but other-focused, self-sacrificing, giving. Paul reminded the Ephesians of Jesus' words, it is better is more blessed to give than to receive. That makes no sense to worldly wisdom, but it makes sense to the Christian. It makes sense to the Christian. In giving, I find the greatest blessedness. 
When love gives, love finds delight in seeing the beloved blessed. And seeing the beloved blessed is far greater joy and far more important than the cost that it is to me to give. We see that in God. We see that in Christ. That's love. This love is excellent. This love, our text teaches us, is the more excellent way. And that phrase, more excellent, simply means, is the way above and beyond measure exceedingly superior. The apostle here, in preparation for the beautiful description of love in 1 Corinthians 13, the apostle is describing love in the loftiest terms. It is the more excellent way. There's an important connection to see here. With chapter 12. In chapter 12, Paul lists several spiritual gifts. Wisdom, knowledge, faith, healing, working miracles, prophecy, discernment, speaking in tongues, interpreting tongues. All of these are good. All of these are valuable to the church. Gifts of God. But there's a more excellent way. There's something far and exceeding more excellent even than those. This love. This is part of the answer to those in Corinth who felt they were less worthwhile to the church because they didn't possess certain gifts. God's word here gives comfort to such persons, reminding them of God's sovereignty, that there are diversities of gifts in the church, but all of the same spirit. And the spirit distributes to different members severally as he wills. It's good that not everyone has the same gifts. Otherwise, the church would be all the same. God gives different people different gifts and that enriches the body. Every part of the body is indispensable and even those who feel they are less honorable or less significant, God calls the whole church to render unto such members more abundant honor. But now there's this. What Paul is saying here. Every believer has the most excellent gift. That first fruit of the Spirit, Christian love, shed abroad in the heart by the Holy Spirit. Believer, whoever you are, whatever your age, whatever your level of giftedness is in the eyes of men, none of that takes away from the fact that you have the most excellent gift. Charity. Charity. And so no one can say, no one may say, I am of no use to the church, I am no good, I am nothing You have the chief gift. You have love. The most important and useful gift of them all. And every believer has the calling and the privilege to cultivate that chief of gifts. And press it into the service of the whole body for the edification of the family of faith. Every believer has that gift. The more excellent way of the Christian life is love. And love is not the possession of a few, but is the possession of all God's people. But now, when the apostle calls love here the more excellent way, he's teaching more than that love is a gift. He's teaching more than that love is the greatest of the spiritual gifts. He says, love is 
the more excellent way. Way. And as we've seen not that long ago, way is a road, a path, and it is a common figure for the Christian life. Love is the most excellent form, shape, of the Christian life. Love is not merely a gift. Like, in that day, speaking in tongues. A gift that was exercised once in a while. Like a light that you turn on and off. That's not what love is. Love is more than a gift. Love is the way of the Christian life. Indeed, you can say, love is the Christian life. The Christian life is loving God in the neighbor because of God's love for us. The Christian life is being a mirror, a reflector of God's love. It's the essence of the Christian life. It is the all-dominating, all-governing principle of the Christian life. It is the motive that ought to stand behind all of the willing, all of the thinking, all of the doing, all of the speaking of the Christian life. Love is always to be exercised. It's the more excellent way that we are called to live. Not merely a gift to use now and then. But the way we are called to live for the glory of God. And that love, the more excellent way, is the supreme gift That makes every other gift excellent. It is the supreme gift that makes every other spiritual gift profitable, useful, and beneficial. And we're going to see that more next time in the opening verses of 1 Corinthians 13. Without love, every other gift is of no use. Love is the soil in which every other gift and fruit in the Christian life must grow. That's why Colossians 3 verse 14 calls it the bond of perfectness. And the idea there is that love is the bond that ties everything together so that everything works together and functions the way it's supposed to. If you take love out of the equation, everything falls apart. Love is the bond of perfectness that ties the Christian life together and makes it fruitful. And thus Paul says to the Corinthians and to us, I show you the more excellent way. And what exciting instruction it is that we will enter into in the weeks ahead. We've seen the need for that instruction. We've seen an overview of the more excellent way of love. We finish now with the calling. Paul says in our text, covet earnestly the best gifts. And that's pointing back and it's pointing forwards. It's pointing back To everything that Paul talked about in chapter 12. He's instructing the Corinthians to pursue good spiritual gifts. That's useful to the church. Strive after, exert yourself unto those gifts. Discover the gifts that God has given you. Pray to to God that His Spirit may work in you gifts that are of use to the church and edifying to the body. That's good. Cultivate the gifts that God has given you. Whether it's wisdom, whether it's knowledge, compassion, hospitality, whatever those gifts may be, God has given them to you. Cultivate them, use them, and covet the best ones. And the best ones are those 
that edify not just me, not just my circle of friends, but the body of Christ. But this calling, covet earnestly the best gifts, isn't just pointing back to chapter 12, but it is a view to what is coming in chapter 13. Covet the best gift of them all. Love. And that word covet there, you could literally translate it this way, be zealous for. The Greek word here is the word we get our word zealot from. Isn't that interesting? Be a zealot for love. Be a zealot for true Christian love. Pursue it. Cultivate it. Chase after it. Practice it. Live it out with that kind of enthusiasm, that kind of earnestness, that you may be called a zealot for Christian love. That's Paul's instruction to the church. That's the calling that comes to us. We can't do it of ourselves. But we can do all things through Christ who strengthens us. And by His Spirit. As we enter 1 Corinthians 13. Let us be zealous. To learn from this word of God. Excited. To hear what this part of the Bible has to say. And eager to put it into practice in our lives. That through the exercise of love and walking on the more excellent way, God's people may be built up and God Himself glorified. Amen. Faithful God and Father, We thank Thee for Thy love toward us. Grant that Thy love for us may abundantly bear the fruit of true Christian love for one another. Grant that as we go into and unpack the glorious truth of 1 Corinthians 13, that we may be instructed and edified, and that as believers and as a congregation, we may grow and more and more walk in the more excellent way. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.